you're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If you have your copy of God's Word, if you want to open to Psalm 51, we're going to be going through this psalm today, and actually next week. I, uh, I'm going to do a two-part series, and I'll tell you kind of the, the background of the psalm in a minute. While you're turning there, though, I want to, I want to read you a short story. We're going to be talking about repentance today. So here's a, a story of repentance. A young man named John received a parrot as a gift, but the parrot had a bad attitude and even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. John tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words, plain soft music, and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's vocabulary. Finally, John was fed up and yelled at the parrot. The parrot yelled back. John shook the parrot. The parrot got angrier and even ruder. John, in desperation, threw up his hands grabbed the bird and put him in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. And fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, John quickly opened the door to the freezer. The parrot calmly stepped out onto John's outstretched arm and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions and I fully intend to do everything I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. John was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude. As he was about to ask the parrot what had made such a dramatic change in his behavior, the bird continued, may I ask what the turkey did? (laughs) So repentance. Why do you say you're sorry? What do you mean when you say you're sorry? When I tell my three-year-old after he's hit a sibling, now say you're sorry, what am I expecting of him? What does that mean when I want him to say I'm sorry? And so my goal today, my aim is that when you sin, which will probably happen today, and you ask for forgiveness, what do you really mean? What are you asking for? Is it going to be something that, that you, you want more than just, okay, I, I, just, I feel bad, or, or do you want something else? So we're going to read Psalm 51, and just to give you a background here, David, King David is the author, and he had committed adultery. As king, he had seen another woman uh, who was not his wife and slept with her, and she got pregnant, and to try to cover that up, he brought in her husband, hoping that that could kind of time things right, and he would, that that didn't work. So then David's final act of desperation was he had this man sent to the front lines in battle with the express purpose of knowing he's going to get killed. And his plan seemed to work. And so then when Uriah's wife, that was Uriah, um, after she was done mourning, David took her to be his wife. And it looked like, okay, this is our baby here. And we don't know exactly how long this went on, maybe a year that David thought like, okay, I've got away with my sin But God sent Nathan the prophet, and he told David a story that convicted him, really just made him angry at the man in the story. And then David said, you're actually that man. And David realized his sin, and he said, I've sinned against the Lord. And there were consequences that he had to deal with, but God's words through Nathan were, 
The Lord has put away your sin. And then David wrote this psalm. And this is one of the most uh, extensive chapters in the Bible on repentance. And so my prayer today is that as we read this, we learn more. What does it look like to be a repentant person? What do I mean when I say I'm sorry? What do you mean later today when you ask God to forgive you? What do we mean? There's four parts, actually, that I'm going to break it into. And all these kind of overlap. But we're going to cover two today and two tomorrow. So read with me the whole psalm. And then we'll just cover the first 12 verses. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom and the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence or take, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I want to start out by talking about what repentance is not today, so that we're really clear on this. A lot of times I think what I would offer as repentance is really just asking for forgiveness only to head off the consequences or to get rid of my guilt feelings. So here's what repentance is not. A vague, bad feeling that you're a crummy person. That's not the same as conviction for sin. Feeling rotten is not the same as repentance. And this is why nothing will change until you get specific about your sins. So crummy feelings or vague unworthiness, is, they're useful if they lead to conviction of sin and seeing clear disobedience from God's word. My wife always says God's word is the, is the straight line against which our crookedness is revealed. Now I know and now I can repent. But if it's just kind of this vague thing, I don't even know what I'm really repenting of. What's the root problem there? But when I can point to them, I can repent, I can ask for forgiveness, I can take aim to destroy them and actually talk about, okay, so what am I going to do different next time? Now you're broken and angry at your sin. You want to kill it. Romans 8, 13, Colossians 3, 5, both talk about putting your sin to death, being a sin murderer. Do you have that attitude when you repent? The reason we have guilt, by the way, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit in you, it's not vague. 
the, the Holy Spirit's job is to point out specifically, here's where you broke God's command. I would be a really cruel father if I told my kids, hey, you did something wrong today, but you got to guess what it is. You got to figure it out. That'd be cruel, right? When God convicts us, he is trying to show us specifically, this is where you violated my word. This is where you got off track. Now I know what I can repent of. And then the purpose of that guilt is to bring me to repentance, and then the forgiveness of God is received, and now there should be no more guilt there. Any further guilt is either, it's false guilt, it's either my guilt on myself that I'm imposing or Satan's condemnation, but it's not from the Holy Spirit. So I've got to understand how all of this works. But I also want to make sure you, you don't think that repentance is a shallow, mindless, short prayer that's just tossed up to God, asking him for the forgiveness that you already know that he's going to give, kind of like driving through a toll road and you toss your change in and then you move on. That's not repentance either. Your repentance can't be very deep if you never stop to examine why you sinned in the first place, coupled with the resolution and a plan on how you'll avoid the same mistake. What David goes through in this psalm is he confesses, and then there's, so there's confession, then there's petition, then there's adoration, then there's resolution. So the confession, confession part is great, but, but then are you, are you asking for anything to be different? What do you really want to change in your life? If not, it's just cheap grace. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes cheap grace this way. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So my question for you today is this, how long does your repentance take? What does it look like? Do you ever even use the words, I repent of this? Do you ever think past your confession and claiming of forgiveness to actually changing your course? My father-in-law used to always say, you need to have a quick repentance rate, meaning that as soon as you realize you've sinned, you need to repent. But needing to repent quickly doesn't need, I need to make it a quick repentance. I need to make sure that I'm thinking things through. So here's what David had, and I want to walk us through the gospel in these, in these first verses. Look in verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. God's love, God's mercy, not mine, not David's. Now, David already had the assurance of pardon, right? So why does he have to go through all this? Because he's repenting. Because he's going beyond his feeling guilty and confessing sin and just receiving pardon. He wants something to be different. And there's two extremes when you're confronted with your sin, by the way. You can wallow in shame and guilt, or you can just think your sin is no big deal. And the truth is this, kind of the balance between these two, is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared imagine, yet we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the good news of the gospel, and that protects our hearts from both the pride of self-righteousness and the condemnation of our enemy. The Bible says in Colossians 3 that he's been disarmed, or Colossians 2, that he's been disarmed. He doesn't have any weapon against us anymore to condemn us. So there's a balance there. I don't wallow in shame, but also God's grace isn't a license to do whatever I want because, well, I know, I know God will forgive me. 
If I understand the gospel, there, there's no condemnation if you're in Christ. I heard someone say, shame is where sin goes to hide from grace. So I need to boldly come before God and say, I have sinned, but I want something to be different. What David is pleading for right there, what he's banking all of this on is God's steadfast love. That's a, a specific word in the Old Testament. It's an important word. Hesed is the Hebrew word. It's God's covenant love, his steadfast love, his um, royal, loyal love that never changes. That's what David is banking on, not David's performance. God's steadfast love and mercy are found also coupled together in Lamentations 3. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 103 says that God crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. So my only plea before God, you guys, is this. What Paul said in Philippians 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So how is it that God could say to David, your sin has been put away? Is it that, is it that simple? What, what's going on there? Well, David was, was claiming something that you and I can also claim now. David was looking ahead to what God would fulfill through his descendant. We're looking back in what God did fulfill in Jesus. God saw from the time of David down through the centuries the death of his son who would die in David's place so that David's faith in God's mercy and future redemption united David with Christ. So in God's all-knowing mind, David's sins are counted as Christ's sins and Christ's righteousness is counted as David's righteousness. That's how God remains just and can justify people, can let us off. So the, the news of the gospel is this for you and I. God is holy and he demands that we be perfect. He's a holy God. Jesus said that in, in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I'm not. I, I don't have that to offer. But God's holy. And that's what he demands. And God is also holy and he's just. And he's going to punish sin. My sins have to be punished. And I can't bear them. I can't bear the wrath of God. So I've got a problem. Perfection and punishment that, that, that I can't offer. So what God says is, I will substitute my son's perfect life, his righteousness, it's called, as, as your righteousness. And I will substitute my son's sin-bearing death, his punishment that he took as your punishment, and your sins get paid for. Either way, my sins are going to get paid for. Either I pay for them or I let Jesus pay for them. But God is going to be holy and just, and he's going to punish my sin. And so this is my only plea before God. But the good news is this, God gives you a new heart. He puts, takes away your heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, puts his spirit in you, and your standing in Christ never changes. It is now the righteousness of Christ that God sees in you. So right now, in your seats, you are the righteousness of Christ if you've trusted him as your savior. Here's where we get into trouble, though. There's my, my position in Christ. It's not always the same as my performance how I live my life. And I know that, and that's when I sin. But you guys, the glorious news of the gospel is this. My performance never changes my position. God always sees me this way because it's Jesus' righteousness. It's Jesus' performance he's looking at. It's not mine. That, that changes how you view yourself, how you view your life. When you do 
sin. And that's why the Bible says there's no condemnation because Jesus took my condemnation. That's how all this works. It's called justification, by the way. It's justified, never sinned. To be justified means to be declared righteous. It's justified, never sinned, which is amazing because I know I have. But God says, I'll count it as if you never, you never sin. My son's righteousness counts as yours. And if I don't get that, you guys, I'll be paralyzed by guilt and shame. I'll be constantly feeling like an, an outcast from the Lord. And I could get really legalistic and look at my performance. But you guys, legalistic remorse just says I, I've broken God's law. Gospel repentance says I've broken God's heart. I know who I am in Christ and I love that relationship, my Savior. I broke his heart. Now I want to repent. That's my motive in all of this. So let's walk through David's confession. Now that you get this, I want to make sure you get this. Now we're ready to go through this confession. And you guys, confession is a gift. It's not punishment. Because you know you have assurance of forgiveness now. So coming to Jesus, it's now called the throne of grace you get to come to. And it's this beautiful gift that I can come to him and I don't have a fear of condemnation anymore. But here's the question when we do this. And I have to ask myself this question. Do I just want pardon or do I want purity? Do I just want a cleansed record or do I want a clean heart? I just want my conscience taken care of or actual cleansing inside me. Because this is where David goes deeper than just, will you forgive me? Cool. Moving on. I've got to understand, like, okay, David models for me what my attitude needs to be. And you'll notice all through this psalm, David constantly talks about his heart, his inward being, his secret heart, a willing spirit, a clean heart, a right heart, broken spirit, contrite heart, all of these things. David's like, I'm going to get down deep in this. And by the way, in the Bible, the heart it's the seat of your mind, will, and emotions all together. So it's not just your feelings that you have. It's all of these that are combined. So let's look at our verses here. Look in verse, the end of verse 1 and verse 2. There's these three requests that David makes actually in this order, and then he reverses the order a little bit later. It says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. That word blot out means to wipe out. It's like erasing a record of something. So I brought an eraser up here. This is what we want. Wipe out what I just did. Please don't hold it against me. Now, I got to understand this. It doesn't mean erasing. It means there's no consequences. David still had consequences. But the difference is that God relates to me as a child, not as a judge anymore. And that's different. God's discipline is not to pay me back, but to bring me back. See the difference? That's, that's the good news there. But he's saying, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Look at the next thing. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word wash, it, it actually means what it says, to launder. It's like to wash clothes. So I brought this up here. I don't want to just like, you know, rinse it in the sink. I actually want to launder my sin. Like I want to cleanse it. I want to get it out of me. That's what he's saying. Wash me. Like find the stains and get them, get them out of there. And then he says, cleanse me. Cleanse me from my sin. That means purity. It's this ritual cleansing. Specifics. I brought spot remover. You see the commercials, you spray it on, and then you see the, the stain lifting, right? This is what he's saying is, I want to get to the heart of this. 
I just want this generic, yeah, forgive me, and, and then can we just not deal with any pain or consequences? He's like, no, no, no. We got to get to the heart of this. Cleanse me. Get it out of me. That's different than just saying, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? It's repentance. And here's the deal, you guys. I think often we don't take the time to do this because we know we'll do it again. You guys ever do that? Kind of like, well, I'm just going to say I'm sorry, but I mean, this is probably what I'm doing again today or this week. It's not really repentant, though. And all of this is directly tied, by the way, to how you fight against sin the next time. Like, do you stop long enough to evaluate the causes? It's like a football coach. Your team's getting creamed out on the field. It's halftime, and the coach goes, all right, guys, let's get out there and just try harder. You're like, uh, coach, any game plan here? Any change of strategy? No, let's go win. Okay, here we go. So like getting all fired up and running back on the field might feel great until the ball is kicked off again and now we're right back where you were. So when you confess, when you ask God to forgive you, then your repentance is the halftime. Okay, so why am I losing here? What's causing this? We'll get to more of this in just a second. But look with me in verse three. David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I think true repentance involves my heart, my head, my feelings, and my actions. He knows that his sin is there. It's it's been there, not just a bad feeling that he got when Nathan convicted him, but I think in the back of David's mind, he knew, like, I've drifted. I'm far from God. You ever feel like that? You know, you kind of stay away, kind of stay in the shadows. I don't, if I come back, I got to deal with this. And David just goes, I know my transgression Repentance is seen in conviction, confession, contrition, change of action and direction. But here's the clincher, you guys. Look in verse 4, and we've got to get this. David says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Wait a minute, David. Against you and you only? What about that dead guy? The guy you had killed? What about his family? What about this your marriage vows. What about all this? And it's not that those things aren't wrong towards other people, but you guys, unless I see my sin is primarily against God, my repentance is going to be all horizontal. I'm going to be telling people I'm sorry for what I did, sorry for my bad attitude, but it's not going to be directed towards God. And here's why this is crucial. Any other motivation for me obeying God outside of against you I've sinned, can change. My circumstances can change. And so my motive of like, well, I'm in this ministry role or they're around or someone's watching, if that's my motivation for obeying, that can always be justified or changed all the time. David said, ultimately, my sin is against you, God. You are the holy God that, whose character that I violated. You know, when Joseph was tempted in the Old Testament, teenage boy, teenage teenagers here, He's tempted sexually by Potiphar's wife, beautiful Egyptian woman, just says, hey, come to bed with me. You know what Joseph's answer was? How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He didn't say, how can I do such a wicked thing and sin against you, your husband, my future wife? He just said, it's a sin against God. That's got to be your motivation or else your motive for obeying is going to be wrong, but also your repentance is going to be all this way. The prodigal son, his speech that he rehearsed for his dad, he said, I've sinned against heaven 
and against you. But first, he's going to sinned against heaven. That's got to be your repentance. So David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And then his emotions come out a little bit more. Look in verse 5. He says, behold. That word behold means surely, see, look, now. Oh, it's not this emotionless admission. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He is shouting out a deep spiritual truth about how sick his heart is. Look at this. This is how bad it is. Look at my heart. Crying out to God for mercy and cleansing. There's no rationalization, no excuses. Like when God confronted Adam with his sin, what did Adam do? Uh, well, the, the woman that uh, you gave me, right? Where he's just like, I know how bad my sin is. I know my heart. But repentance says, if given the chance, I'm not going to do it again. Then he uses the same word in verse 6. Behold, look, see, oh, you, God, delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's pointing out this contrast between his sinful heart and what God truly desires, what God demands of us. David knows how prone he is to sin. I think it's just like the, the line in, in the hymn, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. That's what I want. I know how prone I am. Ugh. I don't want to do this anymore. Behold, this is what you want. Something's going to be different. Cleansing is what I want. Not just bad feelings. He moves from his confession now to petition. And he's still confessing as he goes along. But now I want you to see, okay, what are you really asking for, David? When you confess your sin today and you say, God, forgive me, then well, what do you want to be different? What are you going to ask for? Look what David goes on to say. After he confesses, he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. That's what they use to, to spread the blood over the, the door in the Passover. That's what they use in ceremonies in the Old Testament. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out, same phrase we already read, blot out all my iniquities. If my repentance is real, let me tell you what it has to do. It has got to go down deep and sever the root. What's the root problem here? Last summer at our camp, I was cleaning up the front porch of our little chapel. Every morning we get ready to have our speaker sessions and there was this spider web that would show up every day that I'd have to take down every day. So it'll look like we're sharp. And this families were coming and I made the comment as the, a couple was walking by like, man, every day this web shows up. And this mom just kind of offhandedly just goes, well, uh, kill the spider. <laughs> and then she went on inside. And I was like, yeah, that's a good plan. I probably should just kill the spider and the, the webs will stop showing up. So what we're going to find here is what David is beginning to do is get down to the root. Because if it's just confession and then I move on, you guys, I can deal with the leaves and branches, but I am not severing the root of why I sinned in the first place. And this might be part of the reason, like I said, that we keep repeating the same sins. An unknown author once wrote, there is a radical distinction between natural regret and God-given repentance. The flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, and be ashamed of itself. However, 
This sort of disgust with past actions can be quickly shrugged off, and the individual can soon go back to his wicked, wicked ways. Look in verse 10. Here's what David truly wants. He's petitioning God for this. This is the petition part of our repentance. He wanted inward renewal of his heart attitude. He knew that he'd become indifferent, that his heart had become cold or callous. So he asked for what only the creator could do. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That word create, same one from Genesis 1, Barah, from nothing. God, I don't have it in me. You've got to put a new heart. If you don't do it, it's not going to show up. Give me a new heart. Give me the right spirit that I need because I don't have it on my own. I'm going to do this again. You got to give it to me. And again, all the times where David talks about his heart over and over again, Tim Keller insightfully says this about our loves, that he says the real issue with sin is, is our loves, what we love so much. He says this, whatever captures the heart's trust and love also controls the feelings and behavior. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. What makes people into what they are is the order of their loves. What they love most, more, less, and least. People therefore change, not by merely changing their thinking, but by changing what they love most. That's why David's getting back to his heart. I got to change what I love. It's just myself or this sin or this fleeting temporary pleasure. Verse 11, David says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew his predecessor, Saul, that God took his presence away from him. He removed his Holy Spirit. He's like, I don't want that. I want you to stay here. But verse 12, you guys, is I think the heart of, the, of this issue. It's the root of what's going on here. It's the sin behind the sin. When my three-year-old hits his brother, I can say, don't hit. Or I can say, why are you hitting? What's going on in your heart? Why, why that? Not just the hitting. Something inside made you do this. Look what David asked for in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. So why does David ask for joy? Why not David ask for uh, sexual restraint or accountability or guarded eyes? Don't you want that, David? Isn't that going to be your, your, the real issue here? And David knows, uh-uh. Sexual sin is a symptom. It's not the disease. People sin sexually because they don't have fullness of joy and gladness in Christ. They're enticed, they give way because God doesn't have the place he should in their thoughts and hearts. That's why we sin. That's why I sin. Psalm 1611 says to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You guys, nothing is fuller than full. Nothing is longer than forevermore. Like that's what God offers it's what I really, really want, but I fall for these counterfeits as Satan offers, this temporary stuff. And David says, it's not just the sexual sin. I have lost my joy. That's what I need. That's the root issue here. And then that'll take care of the temptation. Famous commentator Matthew Henry said centuries ago, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies. 
and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks. When you have the true joy of the Lord, those sins are different now. You got different tastes, different joys, different loves than what he offers you. So when I'm looking at repentance, I have to ask myself, okay, why did I do this? In Proverbs 14, 8, it says, the wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways. So why do you have such a short fuse and get so easily angered? Why do you let your mouth get the best of you? Why do you look at porn? Why are you so concerned about what others think of you? Why are you still bitter and jealous? Why do you struggle to be generous with your money? Why are you so lured by success and power and popularity? What's the root issue going on there? Where are you finding your satisfaction? Where are you finding your joy? Because those are surface things. What's going on there that, that you're not focusing on and getting from the Lord? There's another proverb. It's kind of gross, but it says this. Like a dog returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And he's just saying, it's like we forget how sick and empty our sin made us feel. And so we do it again. I'm a fool. I'm going back and do the very thing that made me sick. How do I get out of this? I think my attitude needs to be this. In my repentance, it has to be a declaration of war. That when I say I repent of this, then I have to say I'm declaring war on what Ephesians calls these deceitful desires. I have these desires, but they're deceitful. 1 Peter 2.11 says these, this sin wages war against your soul. There is an attitude of, of, of fight and battle and violence that I've got to have towards my sin. or It's, it's not going to change. I'm just going to do it again. John Piper says this about the violent streak in the Christian life. He says, it's a violence against all the impulses in our own selves that would make peace with our own sin and settle in with a peacetime mentality. It's a violence against all lust in ourselves and all enslaving desires for food or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or alcohol or pornography or money or the praise of men and the approval of others or power or fame. It's a violence against the impulses in our own soul toward racism and sluggish indifference to injustice and poverty and abortion. Christianity is not a settle in and live at peace with this world the way it is kind of religion. Christianity is war. It's a declaration of all-out combat against our own sinful impulses. To become a Christian is to wake up to the reality that our soul, the eternal joy of our soul, is at stake. Therefore, Christianity is mortal combat for true and lasting joy. That's repentance. That's resolve. That's saying, I'm going to fight and we're going to do something different next time. I want you to turn with me to Micah chapter 7. And I want to end with looking at how Micah dealt with the guilt of his sin. I'll give you extra minutes to find Micah because we don't turn there very much, I realize. I always forget all the minor prophets. Like, I just got to keep flipping. But I had a bookmark, sorry. I cheated. Look with me in Micah 7. Verses 8 and 9, and Micah is, is admitting something that we've got to, to deal with. 
He's fighting for joy even when he sinned. Look in verse 8. He says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. That enemy could be Satan condemning me. What others say about me could be just myself, my own guilty conscience there. Not letting my sin go. He says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. But now listen to this. He says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Here's where Micah demonstrates for you and I our attitude when we've sinned, when we want to repent, when we realize I'm under God's discipline right now. How do I, how do I deal with that now as a child of God, not as a, a guilty sinner before a judge, but as God's adopted child? What do I do? I want you to notice that Micah knows he's guilty of real sin. He's not trying to deny it. He's sorry, he's broken. He's not trying to sweep it under the rug. He acknowledges, I have sinned. And there's also real divine indignation for his sin from God. Micah doesn't deny that God has a righteous, fatherly anger that disciplines his child. It's real. But Micah also preaches to himself, to his enemy, the doctrine of justification by faith. He knows that his position isn't changed by his performance. And so he can boldly say this. The Lord will be his light in the midst of the darkness that God has sent. Yeah, God sent this darkness, but God will also be my light. The Lord will plead his cause. You guys, Jesus is our mediating high priest. He pleads our cause before the Father, Jesus. The Lord will execute judgment for him, not against him. God's gonna execute judgment. And it might be easy for the enemy to say, yeah, you're in trouble. He goes, no, no, he'll execute judgment for me. Because Micah is declared righteous by faith, not by his works. The Lord will bring him out of the darkness and into the light. Micah knows he is not abandoned. He's not alone. God will not let him go. God is for him and not against him. That's the attitude that we have to have. That gutsy guilt that I know I've sinned. I blew it, but okay, I'm moving on. I'm claiming God's righteous forgiveness. His righteousness that Jesus offers me. And I know that God, he's going to execute judgment for me. So what that means I have to do is daily live and relive the gospel. It's my only assurance of hope for my ongoing standing before God that what Jesus accomplished for me, it's finished. I must always confidently look to the cross and the staggering fact that all of my sins were laid on Jesus. In 1749, Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Weary of Wandering from My God. I'm weary of wandering. The words that he wrote were turning to a hymn, and I have in the front of my Bible a couple of these stanzas. Here's what it says. Oh, Jesus, full of truth and grace, more full of grace than I of sin, yet once again I seek thy face. Open thine arms and take me in. And freely, my backslidings heal and love the faithless sinner still. Thou knowest the way to bring me back, my fallen spirit to restore. Oh, for thy truth and mercy's sake, forgive and bid me sin no more. The ruins of my soul repair 
and make my heart a house of prayer. The next time you sin, I want you to ask yourself, do I just want pardon or do I want purity? A cleansed record and conscience or do I want actual cleansing in my heart? And then intentionally repent, walk through your forgiveness into this petition of what you're asking God to do. Give me back the joy that I know satisfies me. That's got to be my, my cure. What we're going to do next week is cover the other two parts of this. Confession, petition, but then adoration. Now that David's been restored, what does that mean? And then resolution, what is he resolving to do? And how does that change us? Let me close this in prayer. Lord, we are so eternally grateful for the amazing grace that you have offered to us that you chose to treat your son as if he had lived our sinful life so that you can treat us as if we had lived his perfect life. This amazing exchange of his righteousness for my sin. And God, I pray that we'd never get over the gospel. And God, I pray that when we feel convicted that we would recognize that it's a gift to be able to confess our sins because there's assurance that you are faithful, that you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So God, we... We don't just ask for pardon, we ask for purity and cleansing. God, I pray that we would have a quick repentance rate, but it wouldn't be a quick repentance that we would think through what are the things that caused us to do this in the first place? Where do we lose our joy and our focus? And then God, to fight against it, to arm ourselves with the weapons you give us, to do battle the next time we're tempted. And God, we thank you that you have promised that you have already given us everything we need for life and godliness. And God, we claim that grace as well. We bless you, Lord, and love you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.